I see what I say. The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Today's episode is sponsored by Emblem Athletic. The best option out there for keeping your unit looking amazing with custom shirts, hoodies, and other gear. They're a veteran-owned business that specializes in making it easy for you. And if you've ever ordered unit gear, you know how difficult it can be. Emblem knows you have better things to do than design gear, collect money, and worst of all, sort through a bunch of shirts. Emblem takes care of everything, including, get this, free shipping worldwide. When it comes to something like a deployment shirt, you know you're going to have this for the rest of your life. So trust Emblem to deliver the best, guaranteed. Visit www.emblemathletic.com to get started with a free online store today. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm one of your hosts, Joe Byerly, and this week we're diving into the green notebook of retired Army General Stanley McChrystal. It's been almost 11 years since his retirement and the founding of McChrystal Group, so I wanted to know how his time out of uniform has shaped his understanding of leadership. And we're going to cover a lot in this interview. We're going to talk everything from leadership best practices to the importance of reading and reflection. And he's even going to talk about what he learned from the bad guys that he spent his entire career chasing around the globe. And one of my favorite parts of this entire interview is this honest discussion that we have about getting back up when your legs get knocked out from under you. I believe that we all experience crucible moments in our lives, and those moments can either make or break us. And one of those moments, which was very public for McChrystal, was the Rolling Stones article that led to him handing in his resignation to President Obama. And so I wanted to know what time, distance, and reflection had taught him about this brief period of his life. And I think what he says will be useful to anyone who's had their own Rolling Stones moment. So get ready for one of our most powerful episodes, and please welcome to the show, Stan McChrystal. Sir, just uh, maybe you could share a little bit with our listeners about what you've been doing since retirement and what's been keeping you busy. Well, first, thanks for having me here. And uh, I want to make sure that people understand that most military long-serving professionals, senior NCOs, officers don't have a retirement plan. What I mean is we have a pension, but what I mean is we usually not thought through what we're going to do in retirement. It's almost like you're in denial. And I was absolutely the same way. I was born into an Army family born in an army hospital, went into West Point at age 17. So when I retired at age 55, about to be 56, I had only thought hazily about retirement. So when I entered into retirement a couple of years earlier than I expected, sort of suddenly, and we'll talk about that later, I didn't have a plan. I wasn't locked in. On the other hand, I hadn't agonized over it. But it's turned out extraordinarily well for me in the, it's now been 10 and a half years. In the intervening 10 and a half years, I've started a business, which now has 80 some people. I've written three books and I've got a fourth with the publisher submitted now, which comes out next fall. I've served on some corporate boards. 
But probably most importantly, my son got married. And in this intervening 10 years, my son and daughter-in-law have given us three granddaughters and they live next door to me. I've had an opportunity to make friends in parts of society that you just don't interact with while I was in the military. And so this retirement period hasn't really been retirement, but it's been a tremendous new eye-opening period of my life that I never envisioned. The transition itself, you talked a little bit about how they, a lot of military folks don't have a retirement plan. What were some of the things that you did to help yourself transition? And what are some things that maybe you, you would redo if you had the opportunity or you know, share with some of our service members who are separating you know, just some advice on what to focus on when they decide to retire? Absolutely. It's a little trickier than we think it's going to be. First, when you transition, you are transitioning, meaning you have got to go through somewhat of a psychological shift in how you think about things, because you're not going to be a soldier, sailor, airman, or marine from the moment you leave. And while you shouldn't deny what you were, you should take pride in that. You need to be something different. This is what I found. I found when you deal with civilian companies, they like the fact that you served, but they don't want you to be acting like a soldier in the boardroom. I found that suddenly things which you were not ever involved in, sales, for example, you have to learn how to do that. And then you find out, in reality, you were doing a lot of selling during your career. You were convincing your team to do things that they might be hesitant or frightened to do. You were selling programs inside the military if you thought they were the right thing. So it wasn't that you weren't selling, but we never called it that. So as you transition into a new part of your life, you have to be willing to change. And you have to not expect the world to mold itself to you. You also need to make two or three big decisions. And I was counseled this by a guy who was slightly senior to me and had retired a few years before. And right after I retired, he said, there are three big decisions that you have to make, and they are the three factors which will govern what you decide to do. The first is, where do you want to live? Because if you're absolutely set on living somewhere, that determines part of what you're going to do, your choices. The second is, how much money do you want to make? How important is that? Because if that's very, very important, obviously, you'll give on other things. And then the last is, do you want another job, a full-time job, a second career, or do you want to do part-time work or a set of different things. None of those three things are right or wrong. And for everybody, there's a place on the spectrum. But they are three pretty good factors to consider as you try to put together a plan for what you're going to do. The last point I'd make is most of the people I know, the retired peers of mine and, and people I'd worked with, do several things in retirement, meaning they'll get out, they'll, they'll get a job or start something. And then a year or two later, they'll find that there's something that fits better. And that's okay. You know, we're, we're not psychologically ready for that because we entered the service and stayed for a number of years. But moving through two or three things until you find something that fits the life you want isn't bad. And so I think you need to be mentally prepared for that. A lot of times I feel like in the military, like we're in our own Shawshank Redemption, you know, Shawshank Prison or <laughs> the Truman Show. And so we get these ideas of like, okay, this is what leadership's all about that may not necessarily translate 
past the military. So I'm just curious, now that you've had an amazing career in the military and you've led for over a decade in the private sector, like what, what leadership beliefs have been solidified for you in that process? That's a great analogy to Shawshank. You know, we do. We In the military, we're in our own echo chamber and you start to say certain things about the military. We criticize ourselves to a degree, but we also put ourselves on a pedestal as leaders and we think that our values are better than those on the outside. And when you get outside, my experience was a lot of what we thought was not correct. I always thought, and I shared this observation before, that when I was in the military, that we had wonderful values, but in the military, we really weren't very efficient. And that people on the outside were godless, greedy bastards but they were wickedly efficient. And when I got out in the civilian world, I found out they're not godless and they want to be good leaders, but nor are they very efficient. And so this veneer that says business has figured it all out is just wrong. On the other hand, the idea that they have no values was equally wrong. So what I think military have to do is understand that when you are dealing out in the world, people are trying to be good leaders and run good organizations. It's a little different in the civilian world in that the military is pretty simple, meaning you've got a clear mission from the nation that is patriotic in nature. You've also got this idea that you exist to fight the nation's wars, and that's not hard to understand. It's easy to inspire people to that. And there are some other complicating factors you don't have, such as finance. You say, well, it's unfortunate because we in the military can't pay our people enough to motivate them. What I found on the outside is pay doesn't motivate anybody. And yet it complicates what civilians have to deal with. There is more angst and calories burned over figuring out the size of bonuses than we could ever imagine when I was in. But the reality was, that doesn't really affect how motivated someone is. We try to pretend it does, but it doesn't. What people want is to be part of a good organization. They want to be fairly paid. They want to have a reasonable lifestyle. And on the civilian side, that expectation is higher, but they want to feel like they are part of something and they matter and the organization's good, which is not very different. And so I think that when the military understands those things that are similar, but respects those things that are different on the outside, some of which make it more difficult, you're in a better position to contribute. So then maybe you can share with us, if you could, some of the habits and traits that leadership or that leaders develop in the military that transcend to the civilian world as well. And maybe some that don't necessarily kind of make that transfer as well. Sure. You know, the military is very hierarchical and we wear our rank on our clothes and we are referred to by our rank. In the civilian world, it's hierarchical, but it's less overt. The CEO will often be called by his first name as I am in my company and whatnot. But the reality is everybody still knows that person's the CEO and still to a great degree to first, but it's less structured. And therefore, you come in with this idea that, okay, we've got a strict chain of command and it works down this way and people will fall in. People don't act quite the same way in the civilian world. And so you need to be prepared for that. But I don't want to overstate it. People still will follow instructions. They will do things. And most of the time in the military, I never gave orders. I asked people to do things. 
Now, there may have been an implied expectation they do them, but I don't remember giving orders per se. Then you come to what is perception, because this works against the military a bit. In the civilian world, there is a perception that particularly someone spent a lot of years in the military is going to walk in with sort of a, a ramrod up their spine, and they're not going to be very flexible. And if they were senior, people think that there's an expectation that you want an entourage like they associate with the military commands. And to be honest, there's a reticence to bring on former senior military because there's this expectation that they are going to act like an admiral or a general, and the company doesn't want that baggage. Most people won't act that way, but the reality is there's an expectation that you will. And there have been enough who've done it in the past to give some credibility to that. And so you have to understand that's the perception that most organizations are not waiting with open arms to bring in retiring senior military because they just are hesitant what they're bringing in. That makes a lot of sense. And I definitely see that stereotype is out there of what a military leader is. And it's hard to overcome that. I've got to ask, sir, it's been over a decade, really, since the Rolling Stones article came out. And I know that with time and distance, we usually gain clarity about a situation. I'm wondering, like, what has reflection taught you about the experience? Thanks for asking. For people who don't know, the Rolling Stone article refers to a, an article from an embedded reporter who wrote an article for Rolling Stone that came out in June of 2010. And it painted my staff when I was leading my command group when I was leading in Afghanistan in a pretty negative light. It described us as being a little bit of a locker room atmosphere and dismissive of some political leaders. I didn't think the article was truly accurate, reflective, but it didn't matter. You know, I was responsible for something written about my command. Uh, not all news stories are perfectly accurate. And it caused a furor, and it caused me to offer my resignation to President Obama, which he accepted graciously. You know, in the moment, it was, of course, a shock because I'd always thought I might get fired for incompetence or killed or, or anything that could happen. But I never thought my career would end with any sort of implication of disloyalty or anything like that. I knew the reality was different, but the, the reality of my life since that article is that there's sort of an asterisk by my name for the rest of my life. And when people write an article about me, they usually put some reference to, you know, and it can be very, depending upon how they refer to it, it can be pretty painful to read. And that will be forever. People will say, you know, Stan McChrystal did X, but his career ended, you know, disgracefully or whatever term they want to use. So, when that first happened, I realized it was a wound that would become a scar and I would carry it. And uh, you can't change that. Probably the best thing I learned from the experience was not about the media. It was not about leadership because I felt very good about the job we'd done there and I still do. It was about how you deal with that kind of a situation when your legs get knocked out from under you. And it can be this or it can be something else in someone's life. And I was very, very fortunate. We've talked a little while earlier in the podcast here about the 10 and a half years since I retired and how lucky I've been because it has been almost fairy tale positive. 
Much of that credit goes to my wife, Annie, because as soon as this event happened, as you're starting to process it, you got a couple of choices. One choice is to be angry and be an angry old general for the rest of my life and try to relitigate it either in the press or tell everybody how much I feel I was treated unfairly and just sort of go through life with that bile inside of me. And with her help, we didn't do that. She was very clear from the beginning. We didn't have long philosophical conversations. She just made it clear that we couldn't change the past. It had happened and we would look forward. And we did that. And interestingly enough, what I found was if I focused on everything forward and tried to live in a way that people who met me or or read about me after this and read the Rolling Stone would find it incongruence. They could say, now, wait a minute. I know this report, but I don't see any of that. And we didn't see any of that before in his life. So we'll judge him on what we see. And 99% of all people that I've dealt with have been that way. And so if I ever tell anything about anybody is, you know, something happens to you and you suddenly feel like you're dishonored or destroyed, or you're going bankrupt or divorced. The first thing to understand is while it may be talked about in the moment, pretty quickly, everybody else forgets and nobody cares about it like you think they do. You think that everybody gets up in the morning talking about your problems. They don't. They might for one day or two days. So understand that and then understand that you may get up that way. But if you do, you just hurt yourself. And if you even bother to be angry at people about it or the system, it's a waste of energy because it doesn't do anything. And so what I found was we'd look forward, we'd try to do as much as we could. And quite honestly, every once in a while, less often than it used to, somebody will write something or say something and it will just bother me a little bit. But it's less every year. And that the body of, you know, just call it what it is, happiness in my life has been so good that in many ways, I look at that Rolling Stone article and I think, It may have been a lucky event. I wouldn't replicate it, but it was lucky because it made me change direction at about the time in life when I should. It made me think differently about what the future would be. And it made me appreciate, you know, my friends, because when that happened, I had this network of friends, almost like a safety net that showed up, came out of the woodwork to almost act like a net that caught us. And they're still around. And so I've learned how important that is and how important it is to be part of somebody else's safety net. Thanks for asking. Yeah, sir, that's a phenomenal answer. And my only response to that is that, you know, I know that you commanded the organization that Joe and I work for and your name, you know, does come up often and there's never anybody that writes or says your name and puts an asterisk next to it. So I can guarantee you that. You're kind. And, you know, it's not every day that our life is depicted by a huge movie star. So I just have to ask real quick, how good of a job did Brad Pitt do in portraying you? <laughs> Were you happy with it? or This is going to sound unbelievable. I've never watched it. And I didn't watch it on purpose. You know, I, I, maybe I'm being petulant here. But what happened was that the news came out that they were going to make that movie. And because it was based on Michael Hastings' book, I said, well, it's probably not going to be positive. But then they said, Brad Pitt's going to play it. And I said, well, that's good. And then I expected to hear from him in a way that they'd want to at least meet me so he could figure out how to play it. I never did. And then about two weeks before the movie was released, the producers called me and they said, do you want a private screening? 
And I said, well, you know, it's kind of late in the game. I said, do I want a private screening? I'm asking you guys, am I going to like the movie? And they said, well, you know, the movie has a political angle to it. And I said, well, okay, then I don't want a private screening. And I just chose never to see it. So I haven't. And I thought it was going to be a big deal. I thought it was going to be another sort of gut punch. It turned out not to be. Most people who talk to me about it say, yeah, you know, we enjoyed it. I don't know. Maybe it's someday I'll get bored or whatever and watch it. I like watching Brad Pitt. So I kind of thought it'd be fun. But yeah, he was great. I thought knowing you and a little bit about your history, it was entertaining to watch. But I, seeing yourself, I, you know, I had to ask. It's surreal, the idea of it, though. So one of your books that I really enjoyed reading was Leaders, Myth and Reality. Because I love how you argued that the leadership is contextual. And like too often I have found like throughout my military career, at least, is that we tend to attribute success to our own doing. And then when something fails, it wasn't us. It was somebody else. It was the circumstance. It was somewhere else in the organization. And so I'm just curious, do you think that we often forget as leaders that there's that we're leading it in some sort of contextual environment? And it's not solely on us. Joe, I think that's a great point. And I think we absolutely do that. I've done a lot of thinking about my training and experience during the military. And one of the things I respond to sometimes is what happened at the National Training Center in the early 80s and into the 90s? Because I went in one of the early rotations. I was in a MEC unit. And we, of course, got our butts kicked for the first you know, couple of years because nobody knew how to fight or do logistics or anything else. But we learned very quickly. The problem with that system was the AR process, after action review process, would often focus on whether you followed doctrine, whether you did procedures the way they wanted you to do them. And it didn't really focus on whether you win, won, or lost a battle. You could win a battle and they criticize you for doing certain things procedurally wrong and vice versa. And, you know, when we got into Iraq and Afghanistan, I saw a fair number of senior leaders who had learned the idea that if they did the right thing, no matter how it came out, they would be judged well. And that was kind of true, but it was also not, in my mind, the way military organizations have to fight, particularly in the unit you know, you and I know so well. It's all about solving the problem. It's all about getting the mission done. If it's stupid and it works, it isn't stupid. And so there are some guideposts of morality and legality, but within that, whatever has to happen. And so I think that it's important sometimes that us understand that the leadership you need to provide can vary tremendously depending upon who you're leading, what the mission is, whether you're working with you know, host nation forces or whatever. And good leaders have that ability and willingness to adapt. People who try to put a round peg in a square hole and won't shift how they do things, unless they're just lucky and always are in the kinds of things for which they're perfectly prepared aren't going to continuously be successful. Today's episode is also sponsored by veteran-owned Alpha Coffee Company. Their premium 100% Arabica coffee is freshly roasted for a bold, delicious flavor. Alpha Coffee supports veteran charities and has donated over 19,000 bags of coffee to deployed troops. They also offer a combinable 10% military discount and 10% off for subscriptions. Taste the Alpha difference. Purchase their coffee today from their online store or via Amazon Prime. In a previous episode, sir, we interviewed General Votel, and he said that you served as a role model for him. Who have been some of your mentors and role models throughout your career, and, and what do they teach you? 
it's interesting. And of course, Joe was tremendous leader, incredible leader. I remember the day I got to call him and offer, I was commanding the range regiment. I got to call him and ask him if he wanted a, to command a ranger battalion. And he just says, yes, sir, of course. And I said, when could he and Michelle report to the first ranger battalion? He said, when you need me, I'll be there today. And he had just arrived at the war college and they had just been hanging the last pictures and all for an easy year. And I pulled him out of that. So when you talk about who your mentors, sometimes they're your subordinates. Sometimes there's a people you work for uh, or with. I was lucky enough to work with Sergeant Major Mike Hall. And Mike Hall and I were in the Ranger Regiment together. And then later he came out of retirement to be the senior enlisted advisor in Afghanistan for ISAF. But he also had done Joint Special Operations Command in USASOC. He was by rank junior to me. We're about the same age. We became friends early, but often my mentor was the guy who worked for me technically. And I would make a great decision or a decision I thought would great. And I would sort of go to him for reinforcement to tell me how great it was. And a couple of times he says, yeah, it was a good decision, but you could have made it six months ago. So what's your problem? You know, and his way of approaching things was so good. I also was lucky enough to be mentored during most of my career by Lieutenant General John Vines, I got to know him. I met him when he was a captain and he was a major in 3rd Range Battalion. I saw him hold that organization together almost by force of personality during a very tumultuous period. And then later, when he commanded the 82nd Airborne, he asked me to be his assistant division commander for operations. And I watched the way he dealt with people in a way that was, it was firm. You knew what John Vines wanted, but it was also always convinced you that at the end of the day, he was out for your welfare. He was going to take care of you. And so he has this tremendous following in the military of people who are simply loyal to him because he does the right thing the right way. So I was lucky. I mean, all of us go through a career and we have two or three leaders we follow or we work for that become a model of what we don't want to do. But most of mine were the other way. And I was able to pick and choose extraordinary qualities of a number of people as guideposts. So, sir, we often talk about mentors and we often ask people to share, you know, what they've learned from great leaders in their life. And to kind of shift this and to quote Sun Tzu, you know, the art of war, he talks about knowing your enemy. And he says, if you know yourself and you don't know your enemy, then, you know, you're only going to win 50% of your battles. And you spent a lot of your career chasing down, you know, the nation's bad guys. What did the adversaries, what did your adversaries, our adversaries teach you about life and possibly teach you about leadership? Yeah, a lot. When I was young, my father and brother were in Vietnam and I thought I'd end up there. But the quality of the North Vietnamese soldiers and their effort was, you know, impressive from afar. My father would talk about that what good soldiers they were. Then when we started to characterize terrorists, because I got into counter-terrorist operations fairly early in my career, there was a tendency to sort of two-dimensionalize them. You remember when it was a Palestinian liberation organization and whatnot, we would, whether they're in computer games or movies, these terrorists were looked as sort of fanatical and bloodthirsty and then when you got into the actual fight against al-Qaeda and then al-Qaeda in Iraq, as it emerged, you learned a number of things. One is that many of the rank and file soldiers, I'll call them, or terrorists, 
were very committed, very effective operators, people. In fact, I often described the most effective tier one operators in our unit, the real professionals and all, were more like the very best members of Al-Qaeda in Iraq than they were anybody else. They were people who were committed to a team, courageous, competent, almost stoic in how they pursued things. The only difference between those two organizations was sort of accident of birth, where you were born and the way you were raised, the ideas that you were exposed to. And so I realized that the very best people, and I I would like to think I was one of those, you know, could have easily been on the other side had we just had a different background to us, different last name, different religion, different nationality. And so then you suddenly step back and you say, well, that doesn't mean I agree with them or that I'm not going to fight them, but it does mean I can't start off with the assumption that I'm better than they are, either better at the craft of war or better in terms of the values. Who says our cause is any more right than their cause? And you can make a pretty good argument for the cause, not the tactics of Al-Qaeda, but you could make a pretty good argument for the cause that Al-Qaeda was arguing. And so then you say, all right, if the people they have are actually, many of them, very, very good and uh, very committed. What about the leaders? I'll highlight Abu Musab al-Zarqawi because he was born in a lower middle class Jordanian background, raised in a difficult way, had a sort of a thug-like youth. But then he became very, very committed to the cause that al-Qaeda espoused. He led in a way that was impressive. You would know it well. He was charismatic. He was absolutely committed. He was somewhat humble in the way he interacted with people as he went around and dealt with members of his team. Now, you could say he was a bloodthirsty psychopath, and that wouldn't be wrong because he did behead people and all. But when he can make the justification that doing horrific acts of terror are for a greater good, how is that different from? you know, modern military leaders making the justification that the firebombing of Dresden or Tokyo are okay, killing, you know, 100,000 civilians because it's in the service of a good cause. So I think we have to question that. Now, it doesn't mean we don't fight for our side and do what we do, but I think we have to look at some of the leaders that we sometimes dismiss, both in their ability and their effectiveness and in their morality, maybe, you know, we're not so good. Maybe they're not so bad. Hey, sir, one of the things that strikes me from this interview is how introspective you are. And, you know, it, it seems like you reflect and you think about a lot of things that you've experienced throughout your career. I mean, have you always been this way? And do you think that we reflect enough as military leaders, as busy as we are? Probably not. I think I have always been reflective because I like to read. I like to think about things, but I would be the first to tell you that when any of us get in really busy jobs, your chances to reflect go down. And because you're trying to get something done, you shut out outside noises and distractions that can also cause you to stop reflecting. You can start to lower your head. When we took on Al Qaeda in Iraq in really late 2003, Once that fight got ugly, which it got ugly very quickly, 
I sort of lowered my head and, and battered away for the next five years. And I think most of the command did. And so while we would take short moments to reflect, you almost can't. You've got to batter away at it. And too much doubt can cause you to, to not get the job done. But when you have the opportunity as an individual or as organizations, I think the importance of stepping back and reflecting is key. If you don't, you start with the assumption that, that you're right. And, you know, how many things about in life that we think we are right or think we know turn out not to be so. And so I think it's important, and particularly when we live in inside a unit that's its own echo chamber, nowadays inside social media networks that reinforce what we think. We're kind of back in Shawshank. We're only hearing what the fellow prisoners and a few guards tell us. Yes, sir. I just asked that if you use Shawshank in your next major TED Talk, if you just give me a shout out in the middle of it, I'd really appreciate that. Absolutely. <laughs> you mentioned reading um, when you were talking about reflection and, you know, at From the Green Notebook, that's one of the things that for years we've continued to promote is this idea that military leaders need to constantly be reading, writing and reflecting. And so I have to ask, is there a book or two that you read early on in your military career that just greatly influenced you and just kind of stood by you throughout your entire military career? Yeah, the one, and most guys in my generation will refer to this one, Once an Eagle, written in 1968 by Anton Myrer. And it's a story of two soldiers who begin during the First World War and go all the way through World War II and into a conflict after that. The thing that's interesting, it's a, it's a great big book. It's like 800 pages, and it's a historical novel, but it captures Army life and peacetime and war extraordinarily well. I mean, just even little things about how it was, the ranking, and that sort of thing um, is very effective. And because I was from an Army family, that was interesting. But what was more interesting is, although when you first read the book, you've got two characters, Sam Damon and Courtney Massengill. And Courtney Massengill is a graduate of the military academy, and he's a very Machiavellian, ambitious guy, but very talented. Uh, and then Sam Damon is a Nebraska farm boy who wins the Medal of Honor as a, a young soldier in the First World War and then goes on to be an officer. And they parallel each other through their career. And you read the book. I've read it about six times at different points in my life. And it's very interesting because when you're very young, you draw a very simple comparison. You say, Sam Damon, good, Courtney Massengill, bad. And then you go into your career. And as you get further along, you realize that later in the career, in some ways, Courtney Massengill was more effective in the Army than Sam Damon was. He was able to do things in the organizational sense that Sam Damon was not equipped to do. Although Sam Damon was incredibly honest and incredibly talented, he wasn't truly effective in the larger organizational issue. And you say, well, you know, some of that's important to an organization. So you start to get a more nuanced view of things and you start to say, well, maybe if a, an entire army of Sam Damons might not get it done, but you certainly don't want to hang around an entire army of Courtney Massengills. And so I think it can cause you to think about the organization. It can cause you to think about who you want to be. But at the end of the day, the most important thing about that book in my mind is it does bring you back as complex as both of their lives turn out to be. If you don't focus on a few key things about 
what's important to you, your personal honor, your ability to be a trusted friend to other people. If you can't identify those things and be true to them, you regret it. And I think that that book just hammers away. I've given probably 50 or 100 copies of that book to people I care about to include all of the people who were aides to camp for me during my years as a general officer. I gave a copy of that book just because I thought it was a good sort of developmental book for young officers. So speaking of, what are three to five books that you would recommend besides Once an Eagle for military leaders to pick up and just improve how they lead others? I believe and like to try to read pretty eclectically. So while I would always encourage you to go read Ron Chernow's book on Ulysses Grant and things like that, just because getting a sense of what other soldiers went through in their life, particularly if they had a significant period of war, is really key. But I'd also urge you to go back and read some different stuff. I'm just finishing one of Gary Kasparov's books, you know. 20 years, he was the best chess player in the world. And he, he wrote one of his books is really about losing to Deep Blue in 1997. And so it's a book on strategy, but it's a very human book on leadership and a role as well. I think taking on books that you might first look at and go, well, why would I want to read about that? And then you'll get a different appreciation or pick a political leader. If you Pick a good book. There are many on uh, Franklin Roosevelt, and you focus not on the the very obvious big successes, but on the political maneuverings that he had to do to achieve them. You suddenly get a sense for, you know, leadership is not always just coming up with the right idea, presenting it to people, and letting them fall in line. It is bringing people along to the idea. It is negotiating. It is cajoling. It is maneuvering. It is all those things. And they're not bad. They can be distasteful at times, but they're really important. I just finished uh, Barack Obama's book as well, which I think was phenomenal. And it gives you a window into how he saw things. And he's got a particular view, but it gives you a great window in how he saw the politics and the movement in the nation. And parts of it are depressing. In parts of it, you get the impression that our government doesn't work like it should, which, you know, is pretty obvious. But he he takes you inside and gives you a, a sense of what the real problems are. And I urge military leaders not to become political, but don't be in denial about needing to understand those things. If you can't empathize with what other people have to deal with, it's impossible to be effective. You know, you've got to understand that my year spent with Muhammad Karzai, I had to empathize with the situation he was in and how the world impacted him. I couldn't just go in and say, here's the right answer. One, I might not have the right answer. Even if I did, it might not work for him anyway. And then, of course, go back to some classics. I just reread Alexis de Tocqueville's uh, Democracy in America. And most of us read part of it in school and did never read the rest of it, didn't think too much about it. But if you go back and read about our country in the 1830s and understand just how well a guy captured the ideas, you relearn or learn ideas that we should have known our whole lives. And so, you know, if you're not well-rounded, you're not going to be able to be as effective as you need to be. Sir, you talked about biographies, and that's one of the things that I've just started reading biographies in the last couple of years. And 
One of the things I love about them is that I feel often, and you mentioned it in uh, your book, Leaders, but we put leaders on a pedestal. And when you get read a good biography, you realize that their life is just as messed up as yours is. And the difference is that they were able to kind of push through that. You know, Grant was able to push through his, his alcoholism and, uh, and lead the country during the Civil War. So I, I think biographies are a great source of professional development. Absolutely. So, sir, obviously reading is a great habit to get into, and we talk a lot of, about that on the show. We also talk about the importance of just forming habits. So, you know, I have a thousand questions that I would want to ask you, but, you know, in, in the essence of your time, we're going to kind of wind down with this last one. And just maybe you could share one habit with our listeners that you developed in your career that really uh, made the biggest difference in your success. Yeah, I thought a lot about this, particularly when you posted a question. I think it is self-discipline. Now, that seems a bit broad for a habit in many people's minds, but I don't think it is. And here's what I'd say is most of us know what good leadership is. We can write a list of the things we would like good leaders to do, and it varies a bit. But largely, leadership is not a question of us not knowing what to do. It's having the self-discipline to do it when it's not convenient or it's hard or or any other reason. I would say self-discipline almost to the point of stoicism, is something that I think has helped me a lot. And I'm not perfectly self-disciplined. I do all, I have bad habits. I do all kinds of things I shouldn't do. Don't do a lot of things I should do. But in many things in my life, I've been pretty self-disciplined. And the longer I go, the more I understand how important that is. I mean, it can be as simple as Bill McRaven describes, make your bed in the morning. It's funny. I make my bed every morning. And my wife hates it if she's still in it, but you know, hey, but those things like working out, you know, I've, I've always liked to work out, but the reality is I work out now by habit. And that's a good thing. That's a good habit because I think I'm far healthier because of it. I like to treat people well. I do it generally and I'm not perfect at it. But if you make that a point of self-discipline, You just say, this is what I've decided to do. This is the way I've decided to treat people or or whatever. And then make it a point of you'd be violating your own self-discipline if you didn't. I can't think of anything that's actually more important than that. People who lack that in any part of their lives, I think it shows up as a weakness. Now, people can be casual. I'm not saying that you have to be an automaton or act like a military leader or anything like that. You can be a very casual appearing person, but be very self-disciplined about the decisions that you make. And that's what I would tell people. And, and they should hold themselves accountable. Sir, thank you so much for today. Thank you for you know, taking the time and sitting down with Joe and I and you know, sharing a little bit of yourself with us. Well, you guys are kind to have me. And thanks for all you're doing. Thank you, sir. Really appreciate this opportunity. And I know that Jacob and I learned a lot. And I know that Our listeners are going to learn a lot from this episode. So again, thank you so much. Well, Joe, thank you so much. Jacob, thank you guys. And thanks for being so well prepared and all. You really made this thing easy. Thank you again to all our listeners for joining us on another episode of From the Green Notebook. Check us out at fromthegreennotebook.com where you can download past episodes, read some of our previous blog posts, and sign up for our monthly reading list and Sunday email. 
If you enjoy the podcast so far, please subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter at FTG Notebook, as well as Instagram and Facebook. You can find us by just searching from the Green Notebook. So this is Jacob Garonsky signing off and hope you tune in to our next episode. I came from the mud, there's dirt on my hands, strong like a tree, there's roots where I stand, oh I've been running from the law, hope they won't shoot me down soon.